0: This sermon is brought to you by Shofar Christian Church. We hope that you will be blessed by this message. Our audio and video sermons are also available on Shofar TV to download and share. Thank you. Good evening, church. What an extraordinary time this has been, and I'm so amazed that you all came back. That's quite a miracle. (laughs) Every time I preach and people come back, yes, I am very grateful to the Lord. Folks, before we go on, I wonder if we can just pray one more time. I don't know about you, but I need the help of the Holy Spirit in order to hear what he indeed is saying. Let's pray together. Father, you are enthroned in the heavens. We honor your name. We respect your name. We fear your name. May your kingdom come, may your will be done here in Shofar, in Stellenbosch, in the Western Cape, in South Africa, in the continent as it is in heaven. Forgive us our many trespasses. Give us every day the things we need. Separate us from the tyranny of what we want. Deliver us from our selfish ambitions and conceit. Give us the courage to forgive others. Liberate us from grudges held. Grant us the power of forgiveness. Deliver us from all evil. Lead us into your paths for your name's sake. For yours is indeed the kingdom and the power and the strength now and forever. Amen. There's a the spark of revival in this place. And I'm going to commend to everybody at Shofar at remaining focused on what the Lord is doing. Tonight, for a few moments, I want to bring what is part of a two-part message. This morning, the Lord stirred my heart, and I had such a privilege to spend time with the extraordinary Pastor Jan, uh, who, of course, is here, and I love his haircut. Um, by now, you should know that I have a theology about those who have lost their hair i think that those people with beautiful heads god can show them to the world and brother jan i see the glory of the lord risen over you it shines <laughs> my son had a block for a while in which he would put embarrassing store, uh, pictures of me up not a block instagram apparently that's not a block I've been told that I'm too old for Instagram. This is what he said to me. Yes. He says, Facebook is for old people. And there's this extraordinary picture of a church where the light just fell right on my head. And there was a bright kind of beam of light that shone forth, right? Um, Yes. So for those who have beautiful heads, God can show them. For those who have ugly heads, you need hair. I'm not calling any of you ugly, but I just thought I might add that little bit of theology there for you. But this morning, yes, my brother, go for it. This morning in Wellington, the Lord stirred my heart and I spoke about the one requirement for revival. And ultimately, folks, the greatest enemy of revival is distraction. When we get taken by the fluff and the bubble and the shiny things of Christianity... When we fell in love with the things of the church and not with Christ himself. Psalms 116 makes this extraordinary statement. It says the Lord saves the simple. In Hebrew, literally, it says this. God preserves those who have one heart. A single heart. David said the following. One thing I've desired of the Lord. This one thing I want. The Apostle James warned us. That the greatest enemy of God's blessing is to be double-hearted. James, in actual fact, says when you want more than one thing, you become unstable in all your ways and you receive nothing from God. The greatest requirement for revival, for a reawakening, is to desire just one thing. And church, I know at the moment South Africa is going through a dark time. We are not blind, right? But tonight I'm here, as I said this morning, that sometimes the darkest hours, right before the break of dawn. In church, I believe that all the prayers that we have prayed for so many years are about ready to turn. The turn is not far away. And tonight before I preach, I, I had this unction of the Holy Spirit to almost beg you not to give up hope. Do not give hope, and uh, not, do not give hope when it comes to this country. Do not give hope to the rest of the continent. There's a reason why there's this massive flare-up of xenophobia. South Africa's always been called as a country to the nations, and the key to the revival of Africa starts here, right at the turf. And folks, do not look at the enemy. Do not look at what he is doing. Continue to trust God that the power of the Holy Spirit will turn hearts back to him and back to one another. God is about to connect our hearts with him and with one another. And a revival of love will flood this nation and flood this continent. Church, I truly believe that we are standing on the brink of the greatest revival this world has ever seen. Do not get weary, do not give up hope, but trust in Him. And this morning, for a few moments, I spoke about the necessity of responding to the goodness of the Lord by making vows of a single heart to Him. Tonight, however, for a few moments, I'm going to talk to you about what do we do after revival. Sometimes success is more dangerous than failure. And often what has happened, and if you know anything about me, I am passionate about church history. I know, I know, I know. Many people look at me and say, it's just very geekish, right? Very nerdish. My son is really funny and uh, he's got a, a real sense of humor. I almost said a wicked sense of humor, but it's not wicked. Um, It's on its way to be sanctified. Um, I want to tell you, the Lord got a hold of him a year ago and he's pursuing ministry of such a pure and strong heart. And he got an opportunity to make an announcement in the church just a while back. (laughs) And he wanted to tell the church that we are a comprehensive church. We minister to everybody. This is how he said it. This is what he said. He said, we minister to everybody from diaper to diaper. And um, yes, you'll get it in a moment, right? (laughs) Our pastor was not pleased, although accurate (laughs) and true. (laughs) From diaper to diaper, we minister to the whole world, right? It was hilarious. But a while back, somebody asked him, what does your dad do for a living? And this is his answer. He studies dead people. And I had to say to him, Jonathan, no, they are not dead. They are alive in Christ and in some ways more alive than what we are right now. But church, there's a reason why I'm fascinated by the history of God in his church. I study revivals. And one of the saddest things that I've ever seen is to have a revival interrupted. I've had the opportunity in my very short life to be part of two revivals. One in a church that I served in many years ago. And folks, it was an extraordinary church where people would come to the Lord on a regular basis. We would have 300 people on a Sunday come to the Lord for years. And to watch that revival to be interrupted. It was one of the saddest things that I've ever seen, but I'm so grateful that I've been part of that. Because I can never turn around and say that these things do not matter. I've also had the opportunity in the last 13 years to be part of an extraordinary revival that's happening in Taiwan in a city called Taichung City. And 13 years ago, I got involved with a tiny little church that met in a Buddhist church. Um, restaurant vegetarian restaurant of all things right so imagine ministering between buddhist sculptures that's a fun thing yes uh, i said to each to them "Oh, do not take pictures but 13 years ago started to get involved in this extraordinary tiny little church about 250 maybe 300 people 13 years later this church is about 9,000 strong All of them converts from Confucianism and Daoism. This church has planted 63 other churches around the world. They have a passion to see their city come to the Lord. And every single time I'm with them, their pastors tell me and they say, we are trusting God to build 1,000 churches in our city. 63 down, a few more to go. But that's their passion. And that revival continues on. And the Lord is bringing just people to him in extraordinary ways. Tonight I want to speak to you about what happens after revival. How long can revival last? In the last hundred years, we've seen a number of outpourings. We've seen a number of reawakenings. And sadly, folks, for the most part, these reawakenings did not last long. Sometimes it lasted five years or ten years or fifteen years, however, the history of the church tells us something a little bit different. One of the things that need to be uh, given back, that need to be reclaimed by the charismatic church is a vision for longevity in a city that I, that we live in, I minister in a number of churches, but one of my favorite churches that I minister in is a Baptist church, yes. Yes, uh, can Baptists, can Baptists, yes, can, can they do things? Yes, extraordinary things. And I love this church, absolutely love them. And I've been working with them for about nine years. And I remember the first time I spoke at the church, I made such a mistake in, that I said to them, how wonderful you've been here for about 100 years. I thought they have been there for a long time. This church was started in 1673. 1673 they on the same grounds they've built four churches you can see them in sequence they've got a big church now but here's a church that has flourished and has been a, a beacon of light to our city for almost 400 years about six years ago i had an opportunity to preach in an older church than that I had an opportunity to to preach in a church in Rome, and I didn't know the history very well, so I did my research. And folks, when I stood in that pulpit, it's a church called San Clemente. It was started by the church father Clement of Rome. And the foundation of that church, guess when it was built? 63 after Christ. And you stand on that ground and you realize that a church has been here for 2,000 years with no interruption. That church today is full of people on a Sunday. They're experiencing a Holy Ghost revival. The Catholic community, the priest that is there, is so full of the Spirit. He starts to do the missile, and then he falls over, and people have to bring him up a little bit again. And then there are tongues and interpretation. It's a wild Pentecostal church. Two thousand. Question that I want to ask today is: How do we maintain revival? Friday night, prompted by the Holy Spirit, it's been very disruptive this weekend to me. I have to tell you. I'm a little bit undone, Pastor Sears, you are the reason for that. I think you've been praying and contending to the Lord, and, and I, and I want to tell you, I, I prepared such great sermons, I've not given one of them yet. It's been very upsetting. Every time I'm here, something else happens, and, and I love, I love the, where's that marvelous team at the back, those sound people. Uh, I forgot your name now, so now you'll be Mary. Yes, uh, I give new names to people all the time. Yes, <laughs> you look like a Mary to me. Yes, there you go. Saying yes to the Lord. Uh, yes, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. That's what Mary said. I sense that. And, and some person would come to me and say, give us the scripture. <laughs> and every single time the Lord has spoken so clearly. Tonight, however, for a few moments, I want to, Friday night, I, I made this statement and I said, There's a time of pruning. Every tree that bears fruit must be pruned. Sure, I'm careful as I say this, but I know this to be more true than the reality of me standing on this platform. Your time of pruning is over, the time of fruitfulness has come. And there's a prophetic sense in this place the atmosphere is so thick with it it is almost impossible not to say it i have to almost hold myself back by saying to you the time of harvest has come i am not concerned about the harvest because it's coming (laughs) and the lord is sending the laborers the larger question is what do you do after the harvest What do you do when the growth starts? And tonight's message is very simple, but I believe it's a message of realignment with God's purposes. I love the fact that within the charismatic church, we have recovered some sense of the apostolic. But often I say the following, I said, for the apostolic to truly be true, you have to have apostolic success. You have to have the fruits that go with that you know, I love South Africa. I grew up, as you know, I am, um, somebody asked me the other day, what, what are you, what are you, and I said, I'm a Christian, and they say, no, 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 we know that, but what, what kind of Christian are you, and I thought long about it, and this was my answer, I say, I am somewhat of a reluctant Calvinist with Pentecostal craziness and Franciscan obsessions. Um, my wife says, confused, you know, <laughs> that's kind of where we are, but the point is, I grew up within the Dutch Reformed community, which you know. And you know that in most of this Western Cape, there, there are more Dutch Reformed churches than cows. You know, they, well, wherever there's oxygen, there's a little Dutch Reformed church right there. And, and folks, the reason for that, and let us never forget, is that there was a revival in this land. There was a man called Andrew Murray, a Scottish Presbyterian. And God used the Scottish and the Presbyterian? Yes, he can. And, and he sent this man and, and, and a revival broke through. And that revival church lasted for a very long time. And there's a reason why we have all these extraordinary, beautiful churches everywhere at the center of every town. How long can revival last? How do we maintain that spark when God steps in? But tonight, for a few moments, if you brought your Bibles, and you should have, if not, we will not shame you publicly. Um, Pastor Sears will do that next Sunday. He's taking names. Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. Now, let me just quickly sketch for you somewhat of the context here. It is the Feast of Pentecost. And something extraordinary happens. And sometimes we don't fully understand the significance of it. The followers of Jesus, a number of days after he died and was resurrected and now ascended to heaven, are together during a Jewish festival, and they are praying. Something extraordinary happens. There's a rush of a mighty wind. God shakes the building, and he pours forth his fire. Now, the surprise, by the way, of Pentecost is not the fact that fire came. The surprise of Pentecost is not that there was a mighty wind. The surprise of Pentecost is not the fact that God shook the building. All of that has happened before in the history of Israel. The surprise is where it happened. There's been times where God has shaken his temple. There are times that mighty winds would flow through the temple. There are times where God would pour forth his fire. On the day that the temple was dedicated, he He brought down fire from heaven. The Jews were aware of this. The surprise was that it happened not in the temple, but in an ordinary house where people came together and prayed. Trusted in God. And the scripture says they were together in one mind, with one heart, with one soul, desiring just one thing, which is the prerequisite. And what happens is that God liberated people and gave the ability to preach and to minister in different languages so that others could understand. My son, a while back, when he discerned a call, said to me, he said, I could never do what you do. He said, I cannot stand up and speak in front of people. And I had to remind him, folks, if you knew me as a teenager, um, I couldn't speak in front of people. In actual fact, when I became a Christian, I bargained with God, which, by the way, is never a good idea. And um, you will lose. And this is what I said to him. I said, Lord, I'll do anything. I'll go anywhere but preach. I will not do. I will not speak in front of people. and I will not pray in front of people. It is 37 years later, and those are the only two things I do for a living. The two things I said I would never, ever do to the Lord. But something extraordinary happened. God got a hold of me and provided me with a gift that is not naturally mine. It's a gift that I have to depend on Him. And that's what happens on the day of Pentecost. And, And these people go forward, and a miracle occurred. Three thousand people were added to the church in one day. Now the question is what do you do after this happens? Church, I want to say to you this is not unique in church history. There are moments in times where God just breaks open a country and millions come to the Lord like this. We're about to experience this in South Africa. Where hundreds of thousands of people are going to turn to the Lord. Yes, I know it's dark. The desperation is driving people to their knees. Church is about to happen. I want to ask what happens afterwards. How do we maintain it? And tonight, just for a few moments, I want to drop into your hearts one verse. Just one verse. I'll read to the rest, but it's really one verse I want you to look at. And in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, this is right after this breaking of the Spirit. And, and 3,000 people are added. It says the following. And they, in the Greek it speaks about all of these people, were devoted. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Tonight I'm going to propose that there are four disciplines that we must adopt. Disciplines that provide us with the ability to maintain a culture of revival. I warn you already, this is going to get a little hairy before it gets better. Because there are some things that I need to say, not only about my own life, but certainly about some of the things that we struggle with. Note what the text says. They devoted themselves. That's a lost word in our generation. Commitment has become a throwaway word. We've noticed it in education. Students have become absolute consumers and we have to serve them in extraordinary ways to maintain. In the school that I lead, I have taken a stand against it. So I know when students come, I give them a lecture. It is pre-recorded. The first time they sign on for class, that's the first thing they see. And I say to them, if God has called you, put your hand to the plow and do not look back. Not a popular message, but an important one. I don't allow students to drop out. It's not within my vocabulary. And our retention rates, the average retention rate for masters and doctoral students in the States is around about 62 63%. In three years, the retention rate in our school has gone up to 98.7%. Only deaf. Then you're allowed to go. And I had a student that died in the midst of his doctoral dissertation, and I awarded him his degree, right, at his funeral. And we were there. And folks, it's of extraordinary importance that we have to learn the value of commitment. When we say yes to Jesus, that's your last choice. Once you've said yes to Jesus, church, there is no more choice. That was your last choice. From now on, it's yes, sir. What do you need me to do? Think about it just for a moment. The question for me never on a Sunday morning is do I go to church? It's not within my vocabulary. Wherever I'm in the world, I go to church on a Sunday morning. And even if I preach in our city, Our church has got 12 services over a weekend, and so there's still a service for me to attend. And if I don't attend that service, actually, my pastor forgot that I'm in South Africa, so I got a text earlier this morning. Pastor Cornet, where are you? I looked around. I did not see you. As the head elder of this community, you have to be in church. Pastor, as you remember, so I send him all kinds of pictures of all of you. I've not heard back. But I will give him a call tomorrow. But note you they were devoted. And what were they devoted to? And I'm going to quickly take you through four things. Firstly, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The call that God has placed upon my life is primarily that of teacher. And ever so often, you have a moment of great humility. I'm so blessed tonight that in this congregation... My lecturer at Bible college is present. Pastor John Miller and his extraordinary wife, Pastor Rona Miller, were my lecturers in Bible college almost 30 years ago. And I had this moment when I saw them that I thought, no, no, no. You preach. I am here to listen. They've had a profound effect on my life and have schooled me. Pastor John might not remember this. He gave us a course on humility that changed my life forever i hated it a little bit because it was so painful you know it was a really difficult thing it taught me on the book of James. it's 30 years later and those teachings reverberate within me but for the last 30 years i've been involved in teaching and folks let me just stop you for a moment the number one problem that i encounter is that students do not come as students They come as instructors. And when I was in Bible college, this is confession time, I came and already had a degree in theology. And I remember sitting there this first week or two, I'm thinking, what am I doing here? And then Pastor John came up. My life was changed. I want to encourage you, the ability to continue to learn from God is what keeps revival going. How much do we know about God? Church, I am going to say to you, in the great scope of things, we probably know next to nothing. How long does it take to form a good Christian? The early desert father, by the name of Evagrius Ponticus, asks this question. He says, how long does it take to form a good Christian? And the answer, he says, roughly 85 years. It takes a lifetime of learning. My formal academic area of interest is the Gospel of Matthew. And I have read the Gospel of Matthew every month since 1999 in Greek. And my son said to me the other day, he says, By now, you think you would understand it? He says, you're still writing on this? The truth is, 20 years later, I read it every single day. And There are days that the revelation of the Lord hits me and I said, I know nothing. You can look at one word in Scripture for the rest of your life and you will not reach the bottom. Of revelation. Here's the problem we come to church, and after two years, we think we're giants. I teach at a university, and I teach at a Christian university, and we are desperate. We are asking God to turn the universities in America back to the Lord. Do you know that the idea of a university comes from the church? And historically, universities have three structures. Speaking to all the students. Oh, and I forgot. I'm so sorry. I'm supposed to greet the students online. God loves you. Welcome. I teach in a multi-site church, and we stream a number of services. <laughs> and I always forget, forget to greet some pastor, or I give them the wrong name. Right. I actually call the pastor, Pastor Cookie. Seriously, I was convinced she's called Cookie. But apparently She's not. And uh, there was an offense. I had to buy flowers. I had to repent. It took quite a while for us to be restored together. But the idea, idea of, of, of a university comes from the church. And folks, let me just educate you a little here. The idea, the structure of our degrees came out of the church. The first course of study in the church very early on, around about the 4th, 5th century, was called the bachelor degree. What was the idea? You cannot get married until you've gone through this course. You are not ready for marriage yet. By the way, that truth reverberates through our house at the moment. I tell my son all the time, and it's true, folks. There are things you need to know before you step into marriage. And originally, a bachelor degree was about the formation of character. Integrity, holiness, purity. Martin Luther writes a letter, an actual fact, it's one of the last letters that he writes. He writes it two weeks before his death. And that's what he says. He says, I'm concerned about universities. He says, they have lost their foundation. They have moved away from the word of God. And then he makes the statement. He says, I am scared that universities will become great gates of hell. That's the title of a book I will write. Great Gates of Hell. And sometimes we look at universities, folks, and it becomes a training ground for promiscuity and ungodliness. The second degree was a master's program in which you master a field so that you could teach it. And I head up our PhD program in the school that I teach in, and and whenever we get our emerging doctors to come i give them a lecture and i said a few things i said firstly you don't get a doctorate let me help you here so when my students say i'm i'm getting my doctorate no 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 such a thing does not exist you are becoming a doctor basil the greatest one of the early church fathers that speaks about it this is what he says he says the church needs doctors he says what is a doctor he says this is somebody that can can diagnose an ailment and prescribe a cure. In our program, it's a PhD in renewal studies in revival. At the end of that, I make our students do a vow, a vow that I've written, and we're going to implement it in the next graduation ceremony. I was taken with the idea that doctors make vows. And what's the first vow? Do no harm. Lots of doctors out there, academic doctors, who do a lot of harm. I want our doctors, emerging doctors, to say, we will do no harm to the church. Folks, if we to maintain revival, you have to remain teachable. So here's confession time. I confessed it this morning, but maybe not everybody was there. When I joined the church that I serve in now 10 years ago, I met with my pastor. This is what he said. He said, I think you will be difficult to pastor. I was so offended. And I said, Pastor, what do you mean? I'm going to be your best congregation member. And this is what he said. He said, can you sit in church and when a wrong Greek word is used, can you be quiet about it? And I said, no, you are right. I'm going to be your most difficult person to pastor right there. The reason why I'm in church every single Sunday, folks, is that I need it. I need the Word of God. I need to remain teachable. There are things that irritates me. I'm just going to be very honest with you. I had a long conversation with your extraordinary worship leader over here yesterday, and, and I shared that with him. So worship songs, thats a big thing for me. The worship leader in sequence is the first theologian of the congregation. Because here's the thing. By Monday, you might not remember what I've said, but by Tuesday, you'll still be singing the songs. So the theology in our songs are so important. I wrote so many letters to my pastor, emails about our worship That by April this year, he said, thank you, I receive it. But no more letters about worship until next January. You have fulfilled your quota. You have called in all your favors. Of course, I wrote a letter last week. A little note again. And I say, Pastor, love, love, love our worship. Could we reconsider just this phrase? Can, Can we move back to scripture? But the truth is, I have to. I have to, folks. Why am I in church? And when I'm in church, I'm not a dean of a divinity school. I'm not a professor. I'm not a teacher. I'm not a pastor. When I sit, I, I am a follower of Christ that needs the word. And I want to plead with you, one of the ways that we maintain revival is to remain teachable. Remain teachable. The second aspect that these Christians were devoted to they were devoted, and I love the way that it's translated. The ESV gets it right here. The Greek is very awkward here, and it literally says, and they were devoted to the fellowship. Not just any kind of fellowship, the fellowship. Christianity is so designed that you cannot do it alone. I tried to convince my pastor that there's a six-fold ministry in the church. Apostle, prophet, evangelist, teacher, pastor, and hermit. And he said to me, he said, there is no such gift in the church. Now, folks, if you know me, and it's maybe not evident from how I act on stage, I am an uber introvert. I worship in a church of radical extroverts. I serve in a church of huggers. Can't deal with it. I have a personal space that's a little larger than most people. I was in a serious car accident a number of years ago, and I had to go to a physiotherapist. And by the second treatment, I pushed him off me, and I said, no, cannot do this. And I walked out. My doctor sent me back. They made me sign a contract to say that I will not leave again. And if I leave, there will be a penalty of $200. By the third treatment, when his stomach was in my face, I pushed him off and I left again and I had to pay the $200. I said to my wife, I'd rather die of this pain than to be touched by a stranger. But it's ungodly. Of course, being married helps a little bit. Being married to Italian helps a lot. Having a son that's 99% Italian and 1% South African. You know, when they sit, every part of his body must touch my body. And when I say, Jonathan, scoot over. He's like, why? 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 Why Would you break my heart? (laughs) It's all over me. And now we have two Italian cats and a massive dog that's a horse. Um. That's all over me. Every morning I wake up with all these animals in my bed. It's a very, very painful and difficult thing. But I, I live in a church where folks are hugs. And, and after I preach on a Sunday, and I preach pretty much every third or fourth week. And um, at least in the summer. And, and so <clears throat> the moment that I preach, I make a beeline for my car. When I get to my car, there are people there to hug me. We have an elder in our church. It's this beautiful, noble, beautiful, extraordinary African-American gentleman, tall with gray hair, regal-looking guy. He says, he's huge. He was like a a football player, American football player. And and the other day at our eldest meeting, he got a hold of me and he hugged me. And it went on for three minutes. Right, and I'm patting him on the back, and I'm saying amen, and I'm trying every part of my body. And then, of course, this is what he did. He was holding on to me, and then he kissed me. He kissed me on both cheeks, and he whispered in my ear, and he says, you are loved. And I said, I know, I know, (laughs) I know I'm loved. But too much, too quickly. Church, we need... The fellowship of Christians. I love the Afrikaans word for hospitality, which, by the way, is a requirement for ministry. And hospitality, folks, is not Cook Sisters and Rooibos Tea, although those are lovely in their own time and space. Hospitality is about allowing people in your life. The Africans with Hasfray means the freedom of the get. My wife is Italian as you know, and Italians are interesting people. Being married to an Italian is like marrying the Bork Collective in Star Trek. You know, resistance is futile, you shall be assimilated. And I wake up mornings where there are just lots of people in my kitchen. People that I've never met. And I go down and I try to get cereal and my hand is slapped by people that I've never met and said, sit down, I'll make something for you. And I'm just in a foul mood by that time. It's been seven weeks since I've drunk coffee. My doctor took me off coffee, and I've not murdered a single person. But I want to tell you, the last few weeks have been really difficult. When I wake up in the morning, I just say to my family, don't look at me, don't talk at me. Leave me alone." It's going to take me a while to become a Christian. And... Um, But these people are in our house and my wife is a godly wise woman most beautiful girl you've ever seen you know when i met her, i knew i had to put a ring on that as as quickly as possible you know just to make sure nobody else would get her but our house is full of people italians live for feast days you know so uh, an american independence day is a feast day for them and thanksgiving is a feast day and We have tons of people in our house. And I wake up early and they're already there and they don't leave. (laughs) They just stay. And and sometimes I give little hints and I'll say, how far do you live from here? You know, (laughs) I ask all these beautiful questions and I said, maybe we should go outside and get some fresh air, hoping they'll get in their cars. But these people don't leave. But there's something that happens when we open our lives. Folks, and I want to encourage you, as much as I make fun of my introversion and my difficulties with it, there's wisdom in allowing people to share in your life and share in your struggles. There's wisdom in confessing your sin to a brother and sister and asking them to pray for you. I've started the practice now of confessing all my sins to a brother. I hate it. I hate every second of it. But there's something that divine that happens when you open your lives to someone else and God gets a hold of you. It says they were also devoted to the breaking of bread. Church worship is going to be transformed in the next number of years. And the sacraments that have been afterthoughts will become central in our worship again as avenues of grace And miracles. The powerful thing about, and I like that word sacrament, of communion, the Lord's table, is that we receive something that we don't even fully understand. And how many theological wars have been fought over communion? I do want to remind you, Evan, the words of C.S. Lewis Jesus did not say, take and understand. He said, take and eat. There's wisdom in this. When we come together to a common table, we come equally before the Lord. We have transformed our community of worship where the table is the central aspect of our worship. And people were concerned. And they were saying, Well, does not lose your charismatic fervor and Pentecostal miracles. We have seen more healings and deliverances during the time of communion than any other time. We've seen relationships being healed. We've seen families restored. We've seen marriages rescued. And it brings me to the last point. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. The university that I served at or serve at is a place of miracles. It is impossible to walk that ground and everybody that comes there will tell you this. When you walk the ground, you feel the presence of the Lord. And there's one spot that I never walk across. Because every time I walk across it, God has spoken to me so clearly that I'm quite scared of it. And a number of years later, I had the opportunity to ask the very first president of our university, a man called David Guy Extraordinary, holy, godly man. At least I think he was one of the first presidents. But he was there right at the beginning. And I said, what happened here? This is 40 years later. He said, when we bought the land, by the way, we bought that land with no money. We wanted to buy a few acres. We now own more than 90 acres. That was the original. It's an extraordinary, massive. We could never fill the land. And our chancellor went to the bank and said, I want this piece of land. And he said, I just want a small piece. And then the Lord said to him, no, take it all. And the banker says, how much are you going to put down? He says, nothing. And he says, and how much interest would you like to pay? And he says, nothing for 10 years. And the bank said, yes. And we got it. But when he purchased the land, most beautiful piece of land you've seen, which, by the way, is in an historic place. When they got the land, they did some research. And our university sits on the shore of where the first Europeans landed in America. And there was a man called John Hunt, an Anglican minister who was on the boat, the Sarah Constant boat, that traveled all the way from England. He was a godly man, but he traveled for weeks with sailors. And so when they got to the shore, which is called Cape Charles, He would not let the sailors off the boat until they fasted and repented for three days. And once they got off, he walked these grounds and he prayed. And he said, God, I promise, I promise that from these grounds, the gospel will go forward and Christians will be educated. 400 years later, that promise is being fulfilled. And to make it more significant, our chancellor, when they did the research, is a direct descendant of John Hunt. And this is what he said. He said, I am here not to fulfill a promise I made to God. I am here to fulfill a promise that my ancestor made to the Lord church what fuels revival is so passionate about prayer that he counts our membership not by the people that come on sunday or those that fill in the membership form he counts it by the people that come to the prayer meetings he hires from prayer meetings he said i don't know you until i have prayed with you a great revival is about to break forth in south africa Will you steward that revival? Will you nurture it? Will you shepherd it? Will you protect it? And how do you do this? Be devoted to learning. To learning the teachings of the apostles. Be devoted to fellowship. Be devoted to the miracle of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that we receive at the table. Never stop praying. And the spark of revival that's here will turn into a full-fledged fire that will consume the tip of Africa and will go up all the way to the north, to the Middle East. The Lord has given you the nations. What will you do with it?